This is the 966 episode 82. Richard Wilson. Hello. How are you? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Allergies, kids at home sick, sugar hangover from Easter weekend. But uh, despite the headwinds, the 966 goes on, of course. Indeed. Yes. Every week, every week, uh, do an episode. Every day, we do an edition of the uh, Seustig Review. I mean, yeah, it, uh, we. We need to have a. We need to. We need to get a full staff so we can. You and I can have a day off. Wouldn't that be nice? A full staff would be much needed, but we don't. Well, much desired, but not needed. We right. still go on without it, and we go on this week with eighty-two. Richard, uh, we've got a great one today. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about Saudi Arabia and Iran's recent détente, if you can call it. There's a lot of things we can call it, and we will call it many names coming up <laughs> shortly. We also are going to talk about the U.S.-Saudi relationship as well. Um, and Richard, we've got a really exciting group of um, topics for Yella this week. So we'll get into all of those. No guests this week, but we will be back next week with a special guest. And then we will have quite the backlog of special guests coming up. So don't expect just the two of us much in the coming weeks, if this is what you like. I'm sure <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear our applause? I heard applause. I did. Yeah. Well, you can hear it from the, you know, from the 50 countries that are listening to us, 50 exactly. plus countries that are listening to us. I think it's 52 countries now, Richard. And also we are delighted as we are each week. We see the numbers grow, which is really exciting and very motivating as we've discussed on the podcast each week. But it's also cool because we're getting a ton of feedback these days, Richard, after each thing publishes, after each episode publishes. And you can sort of submit that if you want on YouTube or on our um, Apple Podcasts app, or some do it directly on LinkedIn. Some do it by email. I also get texts and WhatsApp. I mean, I, I know you do as well. So it's really good to hear that because as edifying as this program is for us doing it, it's also great to get really good feedback during the week after the show publishes. Um, this comment from a viewer on YouTube, great video. About that story about Riyadh feeling cooler, Richard, you mentioned last week, I remember seeing a graphic from somewhere that showed that dry and arid regions in the Arab Peninsula are expected to be wetter in the coming decades. Of course, this is relative as it's a fairy tribe place now, but the effects of climate change will definitely carry some interesting new developments in these regions. Um, thank you for the feedback. Trimax is his handle on YouTube. And again, just submit whatever you, any comments you have, just as long as you're nice to other people commenting, say whatever you want to us. We have thick skin and we love comments like this. Trimax also suggests we get David Rundell back on the program, which uh, would be great as well. Uh, I don't know how we're gonna manage that, Richard, now with this very long train car of guests that will be coming up in, that, in a few <laughs> weeks. But uh, thank you, Trimax, for that feedback. And if you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to this, please give us a positive review. <laughs> we would appreciate Absolutely. it. Richard, yeah, it, what's it nice. Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, it is great. These comments are uh, excellent. And, and, and just like Trimax did, they, they often make really good suggestions yeah. uh, for topics going forward. So you know they're curious and you know they're invested if they want to hear more about other topics. So that's good. And we will get David back on the show. David's a friend and, and he's always insightful. And he was great in that first interview as well. Um, really enjoyed speaking with him. Yeah. Richard, shall we? What's your one we big shall. thing this week? Uh, one big thing. It's... Um, it references one of our favorite guests. Uh, so commenting recently in Bloomberg, our friend and Uber analyst, Dr. John Alterman said, quote, the Saudis are looking for an aggressive hedge. 
given what the Saudis see as a radically unpredictable U.S. policy, they think it's irresponsible not to look for a hedge. And by radically unpredictable, you're looking at a U.S. policy that changed sharply between Obama and Trump and Biden, un, unquote. Now, unpredictable, you might argue, is too polite. But John is the diplomat, is a diplomat, is diplomatic. Sorry, he's not a diplomat. Um, but I think we've talked about it on the show. We've talked to, you know, we've had guests talk about it and we'll have more guests talk about it, but we sort of are at the beginning of a new era of U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, both sides are in the process of figuring out and, and determining the best way to proceed. And, and so in that context, I thought it was interesting just to see how two recent high-level interactions went, two high-level actions in the last 10 days or so. Uh, the first last week, CIA Director William Burns was in Saudi Arabia to meet with intelligence counterparts and country leaders. Second, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, spoke this week with Saudi Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman. Lucian, can you tell me what was not discussed during these conversations? Uh, yeah, the fact that Lindsey Graham was sitting in the room with uh, <laughs> with the Crown Prince, just listening on the other hand. I'm obviously kidding. Um, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham, who said, you know, that uh, he would never do anything with Saudi Arabia and that we should. It's a toxic relationship. Yeah, he's he's not my favorite guy. But uh, I think to answer your question, Richard, did they not talk about oil? Correct. Yes, they did not talk about oil. Uh, and this is interesting because in in the you know, when you consider all the ink that's been spilled on the two OPEC uh, production cuts, you know, the two, two million barrels a day in October and the 1.16 just recently, uh, you'd think oil was very much on the mind, but it was not discussed according to all the readouts and reporting. Um, and perhaps this is the case, you know, Williams Burns is the CIA director and, and that intelligence makes sense to reinforce that relationship, which is a healthy working relationship. U.S. National Security Advisor, uh, but I did want to talk about a little bit what, since I mentioned what uh, William Burns, the CIA director, has talked about, um, and obviously there wasn't particularly a readout on that because that's confidential, of course. Um, but what Jake Sullivan and the Crown Prince spoke about, they discussed a number of global regional matters to include ongoing dip diplomacy related to ending the war in Yemen. Mr. Sullivan highlighted the remarkable progress in Yemen over the past year during which fighting has nearly ceased under a UN-mediated truce. Uh, our envoy, special envoy, Tim Landerking, is headed out there at this moment. Um, uh, Mr. Sullivan and the Crown Prince also talked about broader trends towards de-escalation in the region. We've talked about this on the 966 to, uh, to a great extent. Uh, some of the, the, the outgrowth, the, the flowering of diplomacy in the region and de-conflicting de so many fronts. Um, and interestingly enough, Mr. Sullivan reaffirmed President Biden's unwavering commitment to ensure Iran can never acquire a, a nuclear weapon. A red line, I think, might come back to bite us at some point, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the readout from the White House closed out with these three things, which I thought is interesting and telling and useful as we try and figure out what's going to happen with this relationship. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, and the crown prince, committed to stay in regular contact and to accelerate contact between the U.S., the Saudi and U.S. national security teams on issues, including, one, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, uh, PGII. Now, the, the, the PGII is a $600 billion five-year collaborative effort that was initiated by the Group of Seven, to which the, the Saudi Arabia is not a party, 
uh, in June last year to fund infrastructure projects in developing nations. And there's a number of developing nations that are going to receive this, you know, they're looking at to, to invest in as a part of the PGII. One of them is Yemen. Um, but the fact that they're talking to Saudi Arabia about this is something I'm guessing makes Saudi Arabia happy because, as we know, Saudi Arabia wants to be seen as a as a global player, not just a sort of a, a, a regional uh, and local power, so to speak. Uh, and so this is a G7 initiative, initiative, which, as I said, Saudi Arabia is not part of. But it does, you know, talking with Saudi Arabia, how to implement it you know, how to move it forward is uh, recognition of Saudi's importance in these types of global efforts. So one, I think that's a positive. Second thing that they talked about, clean energy cooperation. And this goes without saying, Saudi Arabia is making a big bet on blue and green hydrogen. The U.S. should be all in on this and seek to partner wherever possible. So you've got the PG, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. And two, you've got clean energy cooperation. Three, Development and investment in cutting-edge open radio access network, 5G and 6G technologies. Now, um, one of our upcoming guests that uh, you referred to is Mohammed Soleiman, who is director of Middle East Institute of Street Technology and Cybersecurity Program. He's going to talk about this. And he's going to talk, and specifically, he's written a number of really interesting pieces recently, but he's going to talk about digital and tech sovereignty in these Gulf countries. And these countries are trying to find a way to develop their digital infrastructures, their digital economies, and their tech sovereignty, in essence, and avoid the the essentially, which is a tech war between U.S. and China, and open radio access network, which I, I don't know a lot about. You know, I've just read the definition and a little bit on background and what what it, it, it is is really a, a key way that they can move their project and their plans in terms of digitization and 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 and, and tech forward without being hamstrung or get caught in the middle of, of these wars about Huawei and, and, and other, other things, you know, where tech is coming from, where technology is coming from. Uh, because open RAN, Radio Access Network, again, I don't know a lot about it. Maybe uh, Muhammad will, will educate us a little bit. It involves developing interoperable, interoperable open hardware, software, and interfaces for cellular wireless networks. They can use anything. And um, so, so this is this is, and the reason I wanted to look at the communications that went on in between these two interactions—one with Bill Burns and one with Jake Sullivan—I wanted to see what they were talking about. It's encouraging me; these are these are things they're talking about because <clears throat> obviously the issues about energy are not going away. Um, you know, U.S. is 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 concerned about this economy; it's concerned about inflation. Um, you know, for every $5 increase in oil prices, U.S. inflation, US inflation will rise by about 0.2 percentage points. It's not dramatic, but it, when, when you're sort of things are in the balance in terms of economy, it's, it's, it's worrisome. Um, but I really like that, you know, these interactions didn't have anything to do with energy because honestly, Saudi Arabia has made their mind up. They're going to make these choices based on domestic priorities, you know, U.S. be damned. Uh, but they were about future priorities, clean energy, open radio access. Um, you know, and they were about acknowledging Saudi Arabia has a role to play at the, you know, for, for G7 initiatives. And, and to me, this, these little, these are just minor communications in the broad scheme of things. They're ongoing things. 
but it was encouraging. And I, I like the direction it's taking. Yeah, I mean, Richard, that was a good one. You mentioned, you know, broader trends. We're going to talk about that in a few seconds as well with my one big thing, the sort of broader shifts in the region as well. You mentioned as well issues about energy not going away anytime soon. Well, neither are the issues regarding security in the region. Those are all going to sort of be there still. But what you see is a maturing relationship that is absolutely, I mean, isn't it kind of coming, it's becoming so much clearer now. It's becoming uh, more full circle. This is not a client state to parent state relationship as much anymore. And you can kind of see that now. Five years ago, this this readout would have been, you know, we talked about energy markets and, you know, commitment to U.S. security to the region. And, you know, you would the conversation would not have been about ORAN, 5G and 6G tech, clean energy cooperation. You're just seeing a maturing relationship, but it's happening really quickly. I mean, it's happening within the last six weeks, like just... I mean, at least on the surface of it, um, you know, what do the U.S. and France talk about? Like, what's a State Department readout or a National Security Council spokesperson readout of the U.S. call with Macron? That You know, they're not they don't talk about more basic stuff. They get into stuff like this where it's, yeah, we're talking about, you know, uh, cross uh, ocean cable networks and things that, you know, show an active partnership that's bilateral, that it's two ways, a two way street. So I, this is just a good one. I don't have a ton to add to it, Richard, because it's, it's you know, you just see that this statement is very different than previous statements. And they're not all the same, but it's quite an evolution we're seeing right before our eyes. I mean, yeah, I mean, but this is really good. And you do, you do see this tempo here in the last two to three weeks of, you know, Jake Sullivan, Lindsey Graham, CIA director Bill Burns. Um, there's just a lot of U.S. Saudi, Tim Lunderkin going there now. You're seeing a lot of U.S. Saudi diplomacy in recent weeks, and that's all good. I mean, that's always good, but um, this is good, Richard. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to sort of look into this and say, hey, this is a maturing relationship. It's interesting because Bilal Saab, who's our recent guest, was talking about the need to update uh, with urgency our defense relationship. And and Mohammed Soleiman, who I referenced in my one big thing, uh, will talk about uh, a similar uh, need for urgency in the tech relationship. Uh, and you can see these things changing. And, and, and the overarching, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that phrase is overused, you know, Saudi Arabia still wants a security relationship with the U.S. And, and I, I really think Saudi Arabia is, is making some, some uh, decisive choices about how it wants to conduct its foreign policy and how it wants to manage its, its uh, neighborhood relationships. Um, I think it needs to be considered in, you know, how far it goes in terms of its relationship with Russia in particular, and also China. You know, Saudi Arabia is still critical, and and I think both sides have to be responsible in evolving this relationship. Uh, but like I said, we 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 we're in the weeds every day. We hear what's said. We hear we hear the words that are used. We hear the topics that uh, rise to the surface in terms of of focus and emphasis. And, uh, and, you know, I, I would, I would say these little interactions were encouraging. Yeah, Richard, I'm, I don't have much to add to that, but the conversation is going to flow pretty naturally to my one big thing, which is the sort of broader trends in the region. And I, the, how I want to do this, Richard, if this is cool with you is I was looking into the Saudi Iran thing. We've had just so much good stuff on it recently, 
but it just sort of hit me how quickly everything's happening. So I wanted to kind of go through and just put the timeline out there of everything that's happened in the last, uh, let's see, five weeks, which is a ton. And it, it not just represents a change of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Iran, but a total reset in the region. So, um, and Richard, you and I were both there at the time when we heard this. March 6, 2023 was the announcement of the deal broker by China. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but that was sort of a shock. That was a surprise. The word surprise and shock is used all the time, Richard, in news. And so, like you said, we're in the weed with a lot of this stuff. Sometimes we're just like, that's not surprising at all. But that was surprising. And this was a surprising development. And then March 24th, very fateful day for the Saudi-Iran relationship. A little podcast called The 966, probably have heard of it, did a special episode with three guests to talk about the agreement and what it means from a variety of viewpoints and perspectives. And I keep thinking about those three conversations because all of them, what, four weeks later, are very salient and they all sort of took a longer view of what was happening. So moving forward, April 6th, Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein you Amir, like with this one. Amir Abdulhalian, <laughs> Hussein A, yeah, and his go. Saudi counterpart, Prince Faisal bin Farhan Al Saud, met in Beijing. This was last Thursday, April 6, for their first formal diplomatic engagement in over seven years. So that is a huge deal. And then the momentum continued, Richard. Saturday, last Saturday, April 8th, Saudi delegation, they called it a technical delegation. I think that was just you know, to highlight the fact that it was not as super high level, but went to Iran, went to Tehran to discuss reopening its diplomatic missions in the Islamic Republic. They met, among others, Iran's chief of protocol, Mehdi Honardust, at the foreign ministry in Tehran. Richard, I got to beef up on my Persian names. I've got no experience <laughs> at all. I'm really sorry for all I like, listeners. I like the Mehdi. I like the first name, last name initial. Hussein A. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's their like gamer handle. Exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that was Saturday. Thursday, you've got this high level meeting. Saturday, you have the Saudi, Saudi delegation going to Tehran. Two days later, Monday, April 10th, Saudi Arabia and Iran agreed to restore flights between their countries and resume government and private sector visits. Two days later, we're seeing a really good two-day tempo here. Wednesday, April 12th, yesterday or two days ago, for those listening to it, this podcast will be published on Friday morning and uh, 7 a.m. Riyadh time. A delegation of Iranian diplomats arrived in Riyadh on Wednesday. Similar talks about reopening the Iranian embassy and Richard, not just talks about opening the Iranian embassy, Reuters had a photo of the gates of the Iranian embassy in Saudi Arabia reopening, physically reopening um, for the first time in seven years. If you go online, we're not going to show it on the podcast because I don't have time to write Reuters and ask for their permission to use it. But if you just go online and Google it, it's it's kind of stark. It's a shocking thing because there's this dude just sliding open the gate and you kind of imagine it just being totally empty for the last seven years. Who knows what they're going to find in that embassy, especially in the kitchen. I don't know, but um, yeah. So um, as I mentioned, this will publish Richard, this podcast Friday morning, 7 a.m. Riyadh time, as it always does on April 14th at this clip. I mean, I feel like we might have some new news that makes all this older, like Iran is going to join Saudi Arabia's bid to, for the World Cup or something like that. And just like, wow, things are really warming up. But I feel like this timeline is useful because when this was announced, we were like, whoa, okay, so they got two months. Um, you know, is this going to happen? Let's talk about it. What does this mean? And then, you know, two weeks, three weeks go by and stuff's really happening and really happening quickly. And that's kind of surprising to me. I mean, you see these things and you're sort of saying, man, they're really doing what they, what they say they're going to do here. 
Um, and then Richard just wanted to add to this as part of the contact. This is not just happening in a vacuum, this Saudi Iran deal. It's part of a larger shift for Saudi Arabia on the foreign policy front. And again, things are moving fast here. And it's a, it's really a huge reshuffle. It's like a total reset. Um, interested in your thoughts on that in a bit, but um, I think this period is going to be studied as significant. I mean, no matter what happens next. Um, I mean, this deal, the Saudi Iran deal has first and foremost serious implications for Yemen, um, which we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, but that's where Saudi Arabia and Iran were really in the most direct conflict as far as the Cold War goes uh, between them. Saudi Arabia is recalibrating its relationship with other regional and global powers as well. Let's look at some of those. A delegation headed by Syria's foreign minister arrived in Saudi Arabia on Wednesday, yesterday for bilateral talks. This is the first time this has happened since 2012. Kind of had a warm greeting from him, uh, from the deputy foreign minister, Walid al-Khureji. I don't know if the Arab League as a whole is too excited about Syria rejoining it that I was reading today, Richard, um, and we included something in our newsletter about this. There's some holdouts on Syria. Looking at Lebanon, you have hopes there that the Saudi-Iran deal might have some strong implications for the sad situation going on with the government there. Saudi-Pakistan, Saudi Arabia continues to enhance its ties with Pakistan. You have Iraq growing closer to the GCC as well over the past few years after two decades of having really bad relations obviously, since the U.S. invaded Iraq. Of course, you have Saudi Arabia. Outside of Saudi Arabia, there's an announcement of restoration of diplomatic ties between Bahrain and Qatar. It just, all this looks more real, and it's a huge, it's a tectonic shift happening in the region. At first, we were saying, well, it's a maybe not an earthquake, but a tremor, and it's like you can't really look at a bilateral relationship or the whole region as a whole without seeing how it might change from this Saudi-Iran deal. So, it's my one big thing. <laughs> um, kind of all over the place, but just no, wanted to no. kind of wrangle together these sort of threads that seem to be connected. I think that's a I think that's a good one. And I think it's um it adds to the canon on the nine six six of segments devoted to dim- diplomatic initiatives coming out of Saudi Arabia. We've done a number of them, mm-hmm. and and we take it all the way back. and And, and I think you 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 did the timeline, but I think we could take it back to January 2021 and the, the Alula Declaration when they basically ended Saudi Arabia, ended its dispute with Qatar. Now we see that other countries, you know, Bahrain is I think UAE is the last one now to not to have diplomatic or not to it's still at issue. Bahrain and Qatar that's a big deal. So, but anyway, from Saudi perspective. You can see them lining them up and knocking them down in terms of better diplomatic relations. I mean, there was Qatar first. There was Turkey. There's improved relations with Iraq. There's Iran and now Syria. And as you say, there's just going to be some pushback. You know, Morocco, Kuwait, Qatar are super excited about this. Um, But nonetheless, Syria is clearly coming in from the cold. And whether it happens quickly or, you know, uh, over in stages, it's going to happen in terms of the Arab world. Um, and so we've, you know, like you say, we've tracked this and we've seen this and it's a clear, it was a clear decision by the Saudis <clears throat> that the antagonistic relationships that had arisen, uh, you know, and particularly with Iran, but also, you know, beginning uh, with Qatar, which is a problem, 
it was not helpful. And, and so they've gone about cleaning up these antagonistic relationships. Now I'm less sanguine. I'm less optimistic about the Iranian uh, agreement. I think it's a good move. I think it's, um, you know, we have to remember Saudi Arabia and Iran have had good relations, diplomatic relations anyway, for the most part, except for interludes, you know, obviously this one going back to 2016, um, there've been other, uh, you know, cuts and, and when, when the relationships have been severed, but then they come back and they're not necessarily warm and friendly, <clears throat> but they're operable. You know, what Saudi Arabia, as we know, wants out of this is, uh, Iran to get out of the way or at least be helpful of a resolution, a full resolution in Yemen. Um, and, and we've talked about this before, Saudi Arabia really doesn't want to be collateral damage in a Iranian-Israeli or Iranian-U.S.-Israeli firefight. So if they can accomplish those two things, it's a huge win for Saudi Arabia. I don't see, you know, as, I, as we've said before, and I think I mentioned on, this, on the show, ultimately, if, if you want to, Saudi Arabia wants to defuse a region in its entirety or in a broader scope, that, that specifically has to, in, in terms of the relationship with Iran, that would have to address their, their um, uh, non-state proxies, the ones they have in Lebanon, the ones they have in Palestine, the ones they have in Iraq and Yemen. And, uh, you know, that's, those are tools that Iran is not going to give up easily. And in large part, because they're asymmetric counters to the U.S. and the West, regardless of Saudi Arabia. So, so, you know, Saudi Arabia, I think is going, well, you know, we're not going to worry about those right now, but if we can get real movement on Yemen and, and uh, real movement on, uh, on uh, you know getting out of the path of destruction of uh, you know potential Israeli Iranian uh, you know encounter, then that's a huge win. I don't think you know I don't think this, the Iranians are going to change their spots, um, but certainly a lot of what's going on in the region by all part players, Saudi Arabia in particular, is uh, hedging their bets with regard to to the U.S. And Iran, Iran obviously was already in the in the China camp and the Russia camp. You know, they love that this you know the relationship with Saudi Arabia is at the expense of of the U.S. in their minds. You know, the this this diplomatic uh, renewed diplomatic relations. So this is all good uh, in terms of marginalizing the U.S. as much as possible in the U.S. because it has been their number one goal for many years as well as the Russians and in large, the Chinese as well. Less so the Chinese, but certainly the Russians. Um, so anyway, you're really timely and good. And But since we've been tracking it, we see this arc. And we sort of understand, we think we understand the reasons why. Again, I'm less optimistic about uh, full-blown flowering of U.S., I mean, Saudi-Iranian relations, Um uh, just just because I think Iran has so many other priorities in other countries uh, and concerns that they can only go so far. Yeah, um, really, really good, Richard. 
the one thing I kind of wanted to add to that is basically if we the only thing that happens from this is you reestablish some embassies, they start talking with each other and then the situation in Yemen gets resolved because they're able to talk to each other, hammer out the finer points of the ceasefire, get the U.S. involved. Tim Lunder King's on his way there now, probably there now. But um, if you're if that's the only thing that comes out of this, that is huge. That's been one of the biggest tragedies of of all of foreign policy in the entire world in the last decade has been the situation in Yemen. If they can figure out a peaceful solution there, move forward, start getting people the aid they need, help rebuild the economy, which will take a long time. If they can do that, and then they're just talking to each other and it's not a bromance, but it's just, hey, like I recognize that you're there. And if you need anything, pick up the blower and call me and we can figure it out. If that's what we're looking at here, that's a massive step forward. So I'm I'm hopeful on that. And the, uh, again, this is additional to what I was talking about, but there was a lot going on in Yemen this week. You had a delegation yeah. from Oman and, and Saudi Arabia go to Yemen into the Houthi capital, Houthi controlled capital and say, hey, we, we're working on an extension of this deal for a year uh, after a six month uh, extension of it. There isn't a formal ceasefire in place anymore. It expired, but people have held to it. I think that gives a lot of momentum to it. And so yeah, uh, Ambassador Mohammed Al Jaber, who made the comments on Twitter, I always, I always love that when they're just a huge <laughs> official announcement and somebody just tweeting on a phone. I'm visiting Sana, um, and yeah, I just if that's what we can get out of this, and everything else stays the same, it's not a completely peaceful and calm region, but that's big. I mean, that's nice. It's huge, so, yeah, it's huge, and that's number one on the Saudi purpose reasons for doing this, in my opinion. Yeah, um, it's huge. It'd be a great kid. I'm just saying that, you know, it, 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 we this is sunshine and rainbows right now. And it's wonderful. And it's nice. And you, it, these are good things. But there are fundamental differences between Iranian uh, national priorities and Saudi national priorities. Uh, and and it, but that's the whole point of diplomacy is to to come together where you can and try to avoid conflict and potential, you know, uh, you know, you know, explosion of areas where you don't agree. Yes. And when you're talking, it's a lot better than when you're not. Yeah. Look at the U.S. and China and the U.S. and Russia. Couldn't be a bigger adversarial relationship, but the two sides talk. There's still embassies in both capitals. Just the way diplomacy works, you you talk. So yeah. great point. Good um, yep. Richard, awesome. So, hey, let's get to yellow. Let's jump right into it. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to get us a like official sort of transition audio track. We drop in there. So oh. people don't have to hear that every week. So I'm going to work on that. The problem is, Richard, that might be more annoying than what we're doing, which is just <laughs> a, a verbal transition. But yeah, um, working on that. Yeah. <laughs> What's that. What is that supposed to sound like? A, uh, I don't know. You know, like a camel moving forward. What sound does that make? You know, so it's like <laughs> yella. And also, we are aware we get this feedback a lot. At least I do, especially on WhatsApp. Uh, this is not Saudi in a minute. A minute is like a we're using it like the slang term, which is like oh, I'll be there in a minute. You know. Oh, oh, people. So, so I haven't people had like, that. You know, it's not a minute long. Yeah, and I'm like, I know, <laughs> <laughs> but we can't get into oil uh, in 58 seconds. You just well, can't exactly. Do it. Especially so. no. So interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just a, it's just a notional in a minute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Number one, uh, Citigroup sees oil falling despite OPEC efforts to prop 
uh, near $80. Oil prices are likely to fall below $80 a barrel, even with OPEC's recent efforts to support that level with unexpected cuts, according to Ed Morse, global head of commodities research at Citigroup. China's long-awaited recovery has been slower than expected, while a prospect of economic slowdowns in the West is crippling demand, he said. Quote, we're waiting to see what's really happening with the economy, but it is a slow recovery, unquote, said Morse in an interview with Bloomberg Television. If anything, that will be an end-of-the-year phenomenon, is what his last quote was. Yeah, this story is so interesting, Richard, because they cut prices. It was this quote-unquote surprise we discussed last week, and then all of a sudden, you know, oil doesn't go up that much. It's still, what, 85 bucks a barrel? Yeah, it, it bounced and then it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is that OPEC isn't all of oil production. It's a swing producer. It's a swing cartel. But increasingly, these smaller players that are not in OPEC are like the U.S. are, you know, increasing production and filling in. I mean, it's not total control they have over the market. So when they, you know, throttle back production oil price goes up, but not as if they're in total control of it. I think they're, uh, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, this goes back to September, Richard, and we've talked about this on this podcast as well. There was, it, that was shocking. And, and everybody was like, wait a minute, we're just getting oil prices to be at a reasonable number and inflation's a little bit out of control. What, what's going on with this decision? And it turned out to be, you know, it didn't send oil to $150. It didn't freak out markets. It did briefly. And then the price sort of settled in. So yeah, I mean, since since November essentially last year, the price has been between seventy five and eighty six, um, and stayed within that band. And I think the Saudis would like it higher, but we can't complain too much about it. I mean, uh, and as this article goes on, it's good. It's you know part of the issue is not only a a, a global economy that's sort of sputtering. Um, but you have uh, production growth coming out of Iraq and Venezuela and. Um, you know, projections for non-OPEC liquid fuels production to go up in 2023 and uh, again in 2024. Um, so, uh, so the, you know, the response, which was muted, at least by the administration, U.S. administration, in response to the last uh, uh, production cut was muted. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of talking heads, but it, it, it really hasn't impacted it. Um, and it, it's, got to be a little concerning to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia really needs, I mean, Fitch update, updated recently. We did an episode, we did a segment last two weeks ago on Fitch's, you know, updating sovereign sovereign debt from A to A plus. And, but they talked about the the break-even point has gone from, I think you've gone to, is now at 76. Uh, but that doesn't include a lot of expenses that Saudi Arabia's taking on, including a lot of their giga projects. So Saudi Arabia needs elevated oil prices in order to conduct its its economic uh, projects. So, you know, we've got a we've got a bit of a loggerheads, and and maybe you know maybe Saudi Arabia has to go lower if they want to get the price higher. That would be that might be problematic, but um, yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of sound and fury, but not a lot of change in the oil price. Yeah. They cut production by a million barrels between all of OPEC plus Saudi Arabia accounts for half of that. So although they want higher oil prices, they're also willing to shoulder the burden of cutting back half of the total production of OPEC, which is more than its fair share. I think I also saw this quote, Richard, from Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm, who said that higher gasoline prices could hinder efforts to roll out greener alternatives. 
that doesn't make sense at all. High oil prices should help efforts to embrace battery powered cars and non-oil powered machines. So I don't, I don't know what that was, but I think, I think yes, in terms of adoption, but I think in terms of, of corporates, you know, they, they, they're, they're, you know, if they think there's, there's long-term profits to be made, they're more likely to invest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And this is weird. I mean, I wouldn't want to be an energy forecaster now because you've got all these unknowns, specifically uh, capital investment in fossil fuels. And that's what the Saudis are trying to figure out too. Everybody's trying to figure out what's the capacity going to be? How much of this, you know, we're in a global energy transition that people sort of trumpeted and, and wanted to move to long before we were prepared to do so. Uh, yet it's coming anyway. So what, what are investment trends going to look like? And, and, you know, and, and Saudi Arabia is looking at all right, if everybody's moving away from fossil fuels, we're still going to be strongly into it. And they're, they're increasing their capacity to, you know, another million barrels per day, I think by 2026. Um, so they can be, so they recognize there's going to be demand for another, you know, going into the future, but are they the only ones or others going to be demand, uh, you know, investing, you know, if you're a corporate, do you invest? How, you know, what's your long-term horizon? I mean, can you make money doing this anymore? And I, I geez, how do you predict any of this? That's such a good point. And Bloomberg had a piece about that this week. Uh, that this yeah. Saudi calls them, and and OPEC's always called them speculators, sort of like diminishing or putting down their profession. They're they're traders, you know. They're just. They're trying to right. make money on the margins, but they see it as these guys are betting against us and we're going to teach them a lesson. And uh, this piece in Bloomberg was, you know, the, the quote, the first, the first paragraph, the surprise OPEC plus production cut was aimed squarely at one audience, speculators betting that oil prices would fall. Um, yeah. Prince of Billies have been Salman in 2020 said, quote, the guys on the trading floors, uh, they, he, he wants them to be as jumpy as possible which is just what you were talking about. Cause I mean, that's, you're jumpy if you have no idea what's going on you're like, what do we do? Um, I mean, but, yeah. And you know, I, I also, but we have to remember from the Saudi perspective too, they're not, you know, the energy for security uh, framework that, that everyone says we're moving past and we are in terms of us and Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, the supposition there was that, Oh, so, you know, the, U.S. expresses a, a preference in Saudi jumps yeah, and OPEC jumps, but Saudi in particular because it's an ally. That's not always been the case. But from Saudi Arabia's perspective now, in terms of being receptive to, say, uh, an American request for consideration on oil policy, they're going to go, look, you know, for starters, the EU has put a price cap on energy you know, which is something we really don't want to see. Uh, number two, you just, you just, you know, significantly manipulated the market by withdrawing millions and millions of barrels from your strategic petroleum reserve. I mean, why, if we're trying to preserve our, our economic well-being, should we be responsible of you at all? You're not responsive to us. Essentially, you're doing things that undercut everything we do. So we're, we're just not going to have it. We're going to do what was in our, our own interest. The problem is, is, you know, how much control does OPEC have ultimately? I mean, they can go draconian and cut everything. Um, 
but uh, that that is not something that's worked out for them in the past. And so trying to find a balance, trying to find a band here that works for everybody is exceptionally difficult. And again, like I said, in this environment, doubly so. Yeah, it's a good point. And it there is also, it boils down to the basic supply demand. There's so many angles to this, but you know, if the economy slows, there's going to be less oil consumed. I mean, it's, it's tough too for Saudi, right? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, if they're cutting 500,000 barrels a day, is that, um, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's $500,000 a barrel, 500,000 barrels times 85 bucks. It's not insignificant. No, and especially if there's not a significant, uh, you know, jump in oil prices to offset the you know, reduced volume. Right. And then, you know, we, we throw in too, you know, Russia's selling significant uh, amounts of its oil at a discount. It's just, a, I hate, like I said, I would not want to be trying to project anything in this environment. Yeah. It's always been sort of a tough field. And I feel like the last, since COVID, when it hit negative 38 bucks on the West Texas Intermediate, I feel like it's been wild. And and remember, it was the Saudi-Russia conflict. And it was a 2021 when and Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Russia sort of went head to head. 2020. 2020. Okay. okay. So, man, that is, it's a complex, it's a and complex And that's the market. other thing. Where is U.S. shale? I mean, U.S. shale is, has, you know, has typically been extreme, you know, up to, up to 2018 or 20, yeah, 2018 or so, you know, U.S. shale was going a mile a minute, you know, taking on debt, just producing quickly and and at, at great volumes and now they're much more sober much more restrained they just had a good month last year in terms of new drilling but um you know they just they're not going to blow it out and you know and be a loss leader at at certain levels of of you know crude prices they're going to have to pay dividends to their investors and they have to be responsible in terms of their their long-term commitments so they're no longer a super active player at the top of mind for Saudi Arabia, although Saudi Arabia and OPEC considers everybody in the field. But yeah, I'm just saying, like I said, it's just all, all these variables that used to be, you know, are changing. And, and again, what does energy transition forebode? It's just insane. Yep. Yellow number two, Richard. Saudi Arabia's National Center for Privatization has announced the launch of 200 development projects across 17 sectors. The initiative will provide local and international investors with an opportunity for advanced preparation to ensure their readiness to participate in the projects tendered to the market. Schemes include four airports, seven desal plants, six wastewater treatment plants, 10 strategic water res reservoirs, and according to His Excellency Mohammed Al Jadan, Minister of Finance, these projects will increase the attractiveness of the economy, create opportunities for local and international investors, and increase private sector contribution to GDP. This is a good one. I think we included this because we sort of haven't touched on it recently, but it's a big part of what they're trying to do in the long term. And it's, a, it's an aspect that has not gotten out of the gate quickly. They had a couple of false starts on this, and it's nice to see them going. It's also interesting that I think there's 23 water projects um, out of this 200. So yeah, this is critical in terms of uh, the larger Vision 2030 project. 
And it's, you know, obviously it's important not only for investment opportunities, but also for involving the private sector. Um, so it, it's a, it, 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 it's a big deal and it's nice to see it moving ahead. Yeah. It did have a false start there at the beginning. Um, and now it looks like this is the real deal effort. It's under the minister of finance. Um, so it's, yeah. But this, they they tried this one of the first things they they wanted to get out there with Vision Twenty Thirty in twenty seventeen. So uh, here we are, <laughs> um, <laughs> five years later, and that's you know some things. That's I guess you could say that about many things with Vision Twenty Thirty. You know they they course correct when something isn't working, or you know a, a benchmark needs to be moved to be a little bit more realistic. The, so this is, but this is important for them because a lot of their assets, many assets could be privatized and made more efficient, made more market um, oriented. So, um, you know, these are serious projects to desal wastewater. I mean, water reservoirs. This is, these are, this is a big deal. Of course, correct is a good term because there's no way all these things are going to proceed according to plan. And some right. of them may not proceed at all. And some of them, the plan was was misguided. So, I mean, it, it course correct is critical and it's good to see them getting this back online. Yeah. They also, I mean, they they have blown away some some goals that they set that probably looked ambitious at first, which is good. Not, not in this department, but yeah. tourism seems to be doing really well. So, yeah. Um, yellow number three, Masters uh, 2023. John Rahm won big, but so did Liv Golf. John Rahm was... Here we go. John, John I should, you should be doing this one. You want well, to switch? I Do wanted, you... no, I wanted to make this a bigger segment today. And then I realized that probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea, but please go ahead. I'm sorry. John Rahm was the day's biggest winner, but live golf, the breakaway tour that's caused a civil war within golf ranks, scored a major victory of his own on Masters weekend, derided as a tour for washed up former stars and unknowns, a money grab for has-beens and never was his. <laughs> they really went after this one. Somebody's quite lyrical in this uh live this live put three players in the top six mickelson brooks kappa and patrick reed and 12 players made the cut uh i think that was 12 out of 17 so that's a pretty good number yep what whatever else live may be on this weekend the break in breakaway tour came up big quote we're still the same people unquote said kepka who held the clubhouse lead for three rounds and three holes quote i think that's just manufactured by the media that we can't compete anymore that we are washed up unquote so much to say about this topic, Richard. First of all, I was really hoping for Brooks Kepka. He's not like my favorite golfer, but that would have really gotten everybody so jazzed up if a live golfer had won. It would really have shaken up this whole world. But I think the point of this story is sort of the same, that, like you said, three of the top six players were live golfers. So it's half and half. I think what the first takeaway from the Masters that I have with this live is now officially they're not like bringing in a lot of new guys it's kind of set you know it's not it's not anywhere competing with the pga for rankings uh for ratings excuse me on tv yet but what you sort of have is this really good like american league versus national league type of potential battle brewing i mean this could be the new Ryder cup it could be a new situation in which you have your side you're rooting for one or the other because one or two of your favorite golfers are on one side have, I mean, that's good for the game. That grows the game for sure. Secondly, do you want to know, sort of seeing this, 12 of 17 live golfers, there's more than that in, in live. There are 40 golfers in live. So a lot of these players weren't in it, weren't invited. So that 
means that a lot of these PGA players that wouldn't have been in the PGA, if not for Liv creating a lot more of a market size, they got to play in the Masters this year because of that. And some of them did fairly well. So this, what we predicted, Richard, I, mean, I, I remember this because this is another thing we're in the weeds all the time with. And we sort of saw coming a year and a half ago in October, November, rival golf league rumored, you know, then in Bloomberg. And then we didn't know what it would take, what shape it would take. We also thought they would get no golfers at all. We thought they might get one or two names. They got half the guys, most of the biggest names, to be honest. And then the last point I want to make, this is why I really wanted to avoid doing a whole thing on this because we could do the whole podcast on this. But last point I want to make, Phil Mickelson, that was really awesome to see him get six birdies on the back nine and take second place like just last minute. I mean, it's just so good to see that. Um, as, as Phil is, I'm a right-handed person, but I play golf <laughs> left-handed. So I like really, uh, I look up to Phil as it were. And so it just, what a weekend great for everybody involved. I think great for the sport, uh, great for live golf. Uh, it was just, just, I love master's weekend so much. It's the best. Master's weekend is awesome. And always, uh, comes around my birthday. But um, oh yeah, happy birthday by the way, Richard. Thank you. That, yes. uh, that wasn't meant to, but you know, it's it all. It, you know, I, if it's Masters weekend, if it's my birthday, I know it's Masters weekend and Easter close by. Well, I just want to say because I wanted to say happy birthday to you, and it came on. Your birthday was Saturday, right? Right. Yeah. So I didn't get, I didn't see any social media until Monday, and I'm like, God, I miss Richard's birthday. I'm so oh, sorry, and then I still haven't said anything to you, so I'm sorry. Oh no, <laughs> happy and, birthday, man! <laughs> and I, thank you, and it just ruined my weekend all weekend. <laughs> I just sort of, you know, huddled up in bed, you know, wondering when you'd you'd call. I'm sorry. So I, I feel it. better now. <laughs> but you had the masters that kind of made you yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, man. Uh, you know, at this point, I try and avoid, you know, ignore birthdays, but. On the on the you know on the live golf PGA, I mean the the PGA is still going to fight this tooth and nail. I mean they're in court now, and and the the challenge here is this may be the high watermark for live in terms of participation because you know we don't know what the majors are going to do going forward and and you know it, it, with each passing tournament, you know those folks on the live tournament aren't earning uh, rankings points on the PGA. So they don't qualify for a lot of these things. So unless you've won or placed in a major, you're probably not invited back. And and the Masters is is independent. They can do what they want. And they decided to do this. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting if we if we get to see any live players as the time goes on in in these tournaments because you know the PGA is going to going to advocate strongly that they freeze out all live players. Yeah, that's a good point about the rankings points. I think they will figure that out. I would like, I think the people want to see that. I think the people want to see what they saw this weekend. And so if the PGA just wins out, you don't see these guys in where their Royal Liverpool is where the British Open is. I mean, if you start to not see guys that would be making three of the top six spots in these major tournaments, they're less attractive to watch, like period. So I hope they figure that out. I think they will. I you, I have uh, in terms of the what the PGA will do. I, I'm I think you're you're more optimistic than I am. I think the PGA is going to try and you know is no holds barred. They're going to try and they're not going to give any quarter, not a single inch. No, and they that's a business thing, and I sort of understand that. 
Uh, but you know, but we, we saw a much better product with all these guys involved. And so it was, a, it was an exciting weekend. I, I, I wished it would have been closer down the run, but down the end, but yeah, you know, it, it, Olympic golf has to go out and continue to improve and make it do an exciting project and build its brand too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the farther removed we get, you know, Phil really blew it up early on a lot of his comments, uh, as we know, Greg Norman is not, you know, doesn't give people the warm and fuzzies, but the farther we get from sort of the, the spokes people or people talking about it, and the more we can get into the product and see what it is and see if it's exciting and, and if it can sustain and build the happier I'll be. I mean, cause it, it can be fun to watch. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the players like the team comp set that, that live has, um, you know, so, so we'll see, but live has to build its brand and have some success if it's going to be a real competitor for PGA, cause PGA is not going to give an inch. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to be forced to give an inch. Yeah. And if I'm Jay Monahan from the PGA, I'm probably taking a very similar playbook, not as they did at the beginning, cause that did not help them much. But I think now you're trying to give no, like you said, give no territory away to live. Richard, we should try to get somebody from Live on this podcast. Although I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be like, "Please don't do that." We <laughs> we want to hear about more about Saudi Arabia and less about Live Golf. But if you look at, you know, Richard, when we do some prep for these episodes because we have our newsletter, we take basically our newsletters and you know six of them a week, and we aggregate them, and you can see trends form, and that's sort of how we figure out topics. Live Golf, uh, not for our newsletter, but for all headlines, is like 30% of all headlines relates to Live Golf about Saudi Arabia. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's because there's so much sports press. So, um, this is a huge deal in the sporting world and people that focus on Saudi Arabia are like maybe less live golf, but, um, (laughs) it's just, it's just, it's a really fascinating topic. Uh, Richard, we have a great expert on, um, sports washing and Saudi Arabia sporting ambitions coming up in the coming weeks, joining us. That will be a really interesting topic sort of takes a deeper look at it than just the hot take on quote unquote sports washing. So we're excited for that conversation, but yeah, um, that'd be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just last point, I think live focus on the product completely agree with that. The product now is not terrific. Um, it's really hard to watch on the CW. Is it the CW? That's right. Yeah, the CW. So like that app on my TV is not great. Um, <laughs> they went to a playoff a few weeks ago and it just cut off. Oh, last thing I want to mention, I want to give a shout out to my buddy, Justin lives down the street from me here. He was 20 feet away from that tree that fell over, um, at the masters. He said, he, oh, was, really? he said he had to move or it would have killed him. Wow. So, uh, congrats on still being alive, Justin. You go, <laughs> Justin. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Sent me a photo and everything. I was like, wow, that's exactly pretty good way to go though. You know, in the masters, you're, you know, hollow ground. So yellow number four. Mecca and Medina will now host 1.3 million foreign pilgrims and visitors this year, according to the Hajj minister. Hajj and Umrah minister, Dr. Taufiq al-Rabiya, Richard, who we know, said that the Mecca and Medina, that Mecca and Medina are witnessing a record number of foreign pilgrims and visitors that are currently 1.3 million in the two holy cities. Quote, all the procedures have been improved remarkably, and there is a major qualitative shift in the movement of worshipers, as well as in the facilities and services being provided to them inside the two holy mosques. He said while addressing a dialogue session as part of the first edition of the Manafia Forum, where which kicked off here 
in on Monday here, I think being in Medina, Medina. Yes. Um, I am trying to find, uh, you know, we know Dr. Tafik and he's a really capable guy and we knew him when he was minister of commerce and, um, I'd really love to get him on the show. It'd be awesome because they're doing a lot of things and they're really trying to upgrade the experience and uh, capture not only more pilgrims, but also pilgrims who become tourists who do other things and and that sort of thing. But they're running into a problem now. This is really sort of the, the first full go after, um, after the pandemic. And they've got, these are, these are 1.3 million foreign pilgrims and visitors in the country now, and they're coming doing their Umrah during Ramadan. So Hajj starts late June. Uh, so, you know, they're basically having a problem. <laughs> so, you know, they, they need to get these people through and on their way out because we have a whole nother uh, group coming in. You know, there'll be well over 2 million in terms of pilgrims this year. And, uh, and, you know, and, and they're, they're really upgrading, as I said, the experience and trying to manage crowds better, trying to make the whole, uh, you know, travel and, and lodging experience uh, better, you know, but when you do that, you have more pilgrims. So they have to manage all these numbers. Yeah. Logistically, it's an, an unbelievable challenge. <laughs> We've yeah. talked about it. Um, yeah, he's really capable. He was previously Minister of Health and also Minister of Commerce. So he's kind of done the tour to, tour to Saudi cabinet of the different ministries. We knew him when he was the Minister of Commerce. Commerce and Investment, I think, at the time, right? When it was merged between the two. And yeah, so just a really capable dude. So um, yeah, good one. I also remember Richard. He would He would always want a very modest hotel room. He would always he would not accept special treatment even when traveling as the minister, which I think is really admirable and something I don't have in me personally. But no one offers me the good room anyway, so <laughs> we break even well, if, on it. Yeah. If we had that option, yeah. If we had the option, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's you, right? Yellow number five. Oh, all right. Sorry. Uh, Middle East and North Africa debt issuance, issue, issuances nearly tripled year on year from January to March 2023 to $26.9 billion compared to the previous quarter, marking the highest start to a year by proceeds since 2011. This is a major shift in la- since last year's total of $37.3 billion, the lowest full year amount since 2011. Um this is according to the American British financial data company, Refinitiv. In Q1 of 2023, Saudi Arabia was a leading debt issuer in the MENA region. Yeah. Sukuk made up 23% of total bond proceeds. That's a three-year high, 57% increase year in year. This is good. This is how you grow economies, is taking on debt. Well, we've talked, yeah, yeah, and we've talked about how they're managing their money. It is, it is curious after they had a twenty-four, twenty-five billion dollar surplus last year, and the region itself is the GCC in particular. All, all were flush last year, but it doesn't change. You know, they're, they're, you, you, you cycle through debt, and you know, you, you raise debt to pay off, um, you know, <clears throat> previous debt. You do it to get better to manage your, your, the, the tempo of your, your payments and. And it's, you know, and, and again, we've, I've said it many, many times on the show, you know, Saudi Arabia is having a moment. 
where not only the revenues are terrific, they're busting along in a lot of areas, but when they go to equity markets and debt markets, they are getting good prices because it's considered a good investment. So, I mean, you know, they, they raised 10 billion in, in January from a bond sale. Um, and, you know, that was the biggest emerging market sovereign deal in almost three years. And again, this is in an environment where they, they don't need it, but it's, it's intelligent, uh, forward thinking management of their obligations. So it's, you know, again, they're, 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 they're managing their moment. Well, it looks like. Yeah. Just to break down that debt issuer based on total bond proceeds, which is in this article, Richard, just because I think it's worth it. Uh, Saudi Arabia is 67%. So they're two thirds. I mean, that's large for MENA. So UAE is next at 17%. And then Morocco, 9%, Egypt, 6%. So yeah, very, very, uh, I mean, it, you know, this is what more sophisticated, not, not sophisticated, this is what more advanced economies do. They borrow even if they don't need the cash on hand as it were. So yeah, right. very good. Um, Richard, Yella, number six. Six. Oh man, we're, we're this is so much fun. We're almost done. Damn. Um, <laughs> it's, definitely here, not in, it's definitely not in a minute though. No, it's not in a minute and that's never going to happen. Never. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but we, you know, you got to be consistent. You stick with what you say and you know, like, like we said earlier, it's a minute in quotes. So um, just, yeah. And also it's just not as catchy to say, you know, yellow Saudi in 12 to 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, six top storylines to get you up to date for the weekend is sometimes what I write out, but you know, so whatever. Um, but yellow <laughs> number six, Saudi heritage <laughs> commission includes 190 new antiquities sites in the national register. The Saudi Heritage Commission approved the registration and documentation of 190 new archaeological sites in the National Register of Antiquities. There are now 8,788 8, such locations in the National Register across the country, representing a national legacy that reflects the historical richness of the kingdom. Asir region has the largest number with 35, followed by Aljuf with 32, Tabuk with 31, Hyal with 23, Al-Qasim with 22, and the Eastern Province with 20. Of the new registrations, 11 are in Jazan, 10 are in Mecca, 5 are in Al-Baha, and 1 is in Al-Medina. I just did the tour of all the wonderful provinces of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. It is cool. And it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big part of Saudi's tourism push. You know, they're not, they're not selling debauchery and alcohol. You know, they're selling uh, in some very, really fascinating, unique and beautiful um, environmental places, you know, Red Sea, Asir and, and, and the desert itself, which is, you know, really fascinating. Um, and they're selling, uh, you know, uh, archaeological sites of, of note and of interest. And I mean, you know, so so these things are these are important to 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 adding to their body of of attractions. Not all of them, obviously, are going to be drawing tourists, but um, but you can see how they've just opened up, and they're really looking to to promote their heritage and the history, uh, as well as the geology. Since we, you know we talked about Alula uh, and the geography, you know they have two coasts and they have mountains and they have desert, uh, so it's 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 all good. Visit Saudi Arabia. If you have not done that and it's at all doable for you, visit Saudi Arabia. Can't can't emphasize that enough. I mean, it's so different than your perceptions, no matter where you're from in the world. It's just so 
radically different than what you think. And, and even going there and coming back and then you think about it and then you go again and you're like, yeah, just it's weird how mismatched the perceptions are of Saudi Arabia versus outside versus in. So visit Saudi Arabia, be a tourist. It's something new. You will get it's, it's many easy likes to on do. your Instagram. Yeah, it's, and it's so much easier than it yeah. ever was. Yeah. So, um, and this st- type of stuff helps. I mean, these cool areas, Richard, we had a great segment that you had about your trip to Al Ula. Like that stuff is, that's worth seeing. It's real tourism. Um, you know, just, just cool. Um, Richard, I'm going to finish out today's episode with really good news. Like the best news that, that I, I, this is the best news you're going to hear within the last month, at least maybe more. You ready for it? I, I'm ready. <laughs> You look shocked. Dan Snyder has agreed to sell the Washington Commanders for six billion dollars. It's official. It's official. Yes. Is it to that Rails group, the Harris group? The it's Josh the Josh, Rail, Josh Harris Mitchell Rails group. This is awesome. Um, so you know, this is now officially a Commanders podcast. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah. Oh, um, and apparently he's decamped pretty much his whole family and everything to the UK. So you know, you know, good luck. I'm glad you have him. You were a Terrible owner Terrible. and kind of a petty, mean-spirited person. Have fun in London. Mashallah. Richard, you know, I feel so happy right now. This is a great way to send <laughs> off the podcast. We will be back next week with a really, uh, we have several guests in the hopper. So I'm not, sh- we are not sure which one we will air next week, but we will now be on a really long hot streak of great guests coming up. So if this, yeah, so uh, really good to be in that position. In fact, we are getting a little backlog, so uh, we're gonna have to do some schedule juggling next week. But I, Richard, we got this. We got this. Thank you very much. Really good one, sir. I'll see Thank you next you. week. Excellent. See you next week. See you every day. Yeah. But, see you every day. You know, on, see you on air next on week. On air next week. Yeah. I'll see you on YouTube next week. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye, man. Have a good one.